Lord Jesus Christ, your teaching is truly amazing. But we know it's not enough simply to be amazed by your words. We want to hear your words and we want to do what you have said us to do. And thus we want to build on that rock. Build a house that will withstand the storms of life. A house that will be fit for purpose, fit for human dwelling, fit for your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder which parts of the Bible you find most bothersome. Do you start to get a little bit twitchy right at the beginning? First chapters of, uh, of Genesis, uh, creation, Genesis chapter 1. I mean, when did that happen? A few thousand years ago, um, 13.8 billion years ago. Chapter 2, Garden of Eden, where was that? Chapter 3, tree of life, forbidden fruit, talking snake. Or perhaps you jump to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and that's the one that stumps you. You think, well, that's a, that's a real problem, that is. Uh, the 144,000, you can do some uh, wonderful tricks with that. Or um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Great. Who are they? Ever seen them? Um, the, uh, Babylon, the great. And the fall of Babylon the Great. Excuse me, I thought Babylon fell a couple of thousand years ago. So, beginning, end, or somewhere in the middle, you almost bothersome bits of the Bible. Or are you perhaps, do you perhaps have a bit of sympathy, as I do, with this chap? Recognize him? Mark Twain, well done. Yes, he of the, he of the white suit, who said... It ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. What do you think? Mm. And I wonder if he had, amongst other parts of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount in mind. Um, Most parts of the Sermon on the Mount, not particularly complicated or difficult to understand the words, Most of the words are of one, two, or three syllables. Words that are uh, in common use and so on. And yet, and yet, it is gobsmackingly, preposterously, (laughs) outrageously. I mean, challenging is just not the word for it. I mean, have a Bible open, uh, please, uh, in front of you. Turn back open to, um, well, to begin with. Uh, because the Sermon on the Mount uh, traverses three chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Go back, if you will, to the beginning, chapter 5, which is page 968 in our church Bibles. And see if you don't agree with me, and perhaps with Mr. Twain as well, that um, although we can pretty much understand what Jesus is saying, what he says is really quite bothersome. I mean, jump to chapter 5 and verse uh, 11. Blessed are you 
when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I mean, does that sound like a blessing to you? Does that make you happy, that prospect? Does it fill you with joy? Or perhaps, uh, what do you make of verse 20 in chapter 5? Um, unless your righteousness surpasses that of certain others, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, thank you very much. Or verse 22. If you're, even if you're angry with your brother, you'll be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to somebody else, you fool, will be in danger of hell. Charming. Verse 28. Uh, Yes, I mean, men have a particularly hard time in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Just in case you wondered, for any of you men who looks at a woman lustfully has already uh, committed adultery with her in his heart. Does that make you feel a bit uncomfortable, fellow men? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Oh, come on. Verse 32. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Is that not hard to swallow and uh, verse 48 of chapter 5 be perfect just like your heavenly father easy easily said but how difficult to do now we've preached through these and hopefully given you some kind of help if you've been attending these Sunday evenings uh, and understanding these without for a moment watering down these dynamic, these explosive words of Jesus. I've only quoted there from a a sample of verses from chapter 5. It goes on in in the same vein with Jesus (laughs) laying down the law is one way of putting it, I suppose, until we get, or including, uh, the very end of this sermon at the end of chapter 7, the passage that Hillary uh, read to us where Jesus says, you've got a choice. And there's only two, cho- two, two options. It's this or it's that. There are two ways to live. I guess in our modern culture, we imagine that there are many lifestyles available, perhaps more than any other age in, uh, in human existence. In our current age, there are numerous, multiple lifestyles, lifestyles available. But Jesus says, in any and every age, they boil down to one of two. You either turn left or you turn right. Two ways to live. So in a sense then, more of this preposterous, outrageous teaching of Jesus. Don't take it for granted. Don't just read or hear the Sermon on the Mount at a surface level and think, oh, that's, that's rather nice. <laughs> it isn't nice, it's hard-hitting. Um, 
The two choices are illustrated by a set of illustrations, three in all. Let me run through these illustrations with you. Firstly, our Lord Jesus illustrates the choices we have in terms of two gates, verses 13 and 14. And he says, quite clearly enough, in verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. The choice that Jesus gives us is between a wide and a narrow gate. The sense uh, that he's giving is that one is easy, that's the wide gate, and the other is difficult, it's constrained. The one, the wide gate, you can go through it and take your baggage with you. (laughs) But the narrow gate, you have to drop that baggage and go in without it. The wide gate is easy to find. It's kind of straight ahead of you. Just walk straight on and walk, walk straight through. The narrow gate, being smaller, is harder to find. And because the wide gate is the easy gate, Jesus says there are many who find it. You go with the multitude, you follow the crowd. Whereas with the narrow gate, Jesus says, few find it. Let me just add a footnote here. I don't think that Jesus is talking statistics. I don't think he's talking arithmetic when he says, talk about the few and the narrow. The reason I say that is because of other things that he and the rest of the Bible teach about the relative numbers of what we sometimes call the saved and the unsaved. On one occasion, somebody asked Jesus, Lord, are there few that be saved? And Jesus declined to answer the question. He did just what we'd expect Jesus to do if we know Jesus well enough, which is to say, don't worry about all these others and the numbers and whether you're going to be in the end, at the end of the day in the majority or, 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 the, or, the, or the minority. You just make sure, and he uses the same imagery again, you just make sure that you go through the right gate. And there's another part of Scripture, this is actually is in the book of Revelation, where the, the number of the redeemed is, is described in terms of a, num, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a crowd, a multitude that no one can count. So it's not about numbers. Jesus won't talk to us about numbers. Are we actually, at the end of the day, is, you know, how, how, how full is heaven going to be? Jesus won't go there. He, he refused point blank to answer that question. He said, just make sure that you make the right decisions and that you lead others towards making the right decisions uh, too. So it's not so much about numbers, it's about popularity. Because Christians quite often will find themselves in an apparent minority. It's about refusing to go with the flow. Last Sunday evening, uh, one of our students called Ellie was interviewed by, I think by Izzy, and uh, about what it's like to be a Christian student living for the first time away from home, away from a Christian environment. And more than once, Ellie referred to the need to, to be careful about when it's okay to, and when it's not okay, to go with the flow. And that's really what Jesus is teaching here, about being careful about when you choose to go with the flow, going with the majority. Everyone's doing it. 
is no excuse for attitude or behavior in the kingdom of God. It counts for nothing. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus describes not only a gate, but also a road. There's an entry point and a journey beyond that. I guess there is some danger among some groups of Christians about paying so much attention to the entry to the Christian life, what we sometimes call conversion, that we then think that every, every, everything is done. You know, you're converted to Christ, you're a Christian, praise the Lord, you've got a first-class ticket to heaven, end of. End of. Well, of course, it's not the case at all. And uh, uh, as you may have noticed, if you've attended uh, uh, Trinity over the last uh, year and a half, the way in which Richard, our minister, has uh, taught and encouraged and described the Christian path that he's encouraging us to, to follow, which begins with a focus on the gospel, but then moves on to a focus on what lies beyond, in other words, discipleship. Richard's saying a great deal these days, encouraging us to think and say a great deal these days about discipleship, about the journey of walking with Christ. And so it's the same, we're follow- when we do that, we're following Jesus Christ, who talks about a gate, an entry point, conversion, and a journey along the narrow road, the straight and narrow, uh, the straight and narrow road. If you like it in theological terms, well, you probably wouldn't like it in theological terms, justification and sanctification. One, a moment's work of grace. The other, a lifelong commitment to the cause of Christ and his kingdom. Okay, so far? Thank you. Two gates. Oh, and, and where the, what makes, if, if the narrow gate and the straight and narrow road are so difficult, what makes them worthwhile following? Well, to put it bluntly, because they lead to life. And the other way, popular and easy as it seems, leads, Jesus says, to destruction. Two a choice between two alternatives. Jesus doesn't put this on a Likert scale. Well, a, a tendency to this, or I tend towards that, or actually I'm neutral. I put my, my cross in the box in the middle. There's no neutrality offered here at all. There's no room for a tick or a cross in the don't know or don't care category. It's one or the other. It's as plain as that. Have you made your choice? Have you gone through? Which gate have you gone through? Which road are you following? It's as blunt as that. Now, the second illustration is, uh, concerns two trees, verses 15 to 23. And this is uh, headlined in verse 15, if you will uh, read that with me where Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, for those who teach falsely. He says that such false prophets um, have a deceptive appearance. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like regular sheep, but in fact, they are the sheep's worst enemy. Verse 15. They seem to have impressive powers. They say to Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus doesn't contradict them. Does he? 
Amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, you could, didn't do these things. Just like we've doing, been doing Exodus in, uh, uh, recently uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, Pharaoh's magicians had some strange powers, but they weren't God's powers, and they actually couldn't compete in the end of the day with God's power. They have some impressive powers. Jesus wants us to be fruit inspectors. Look, uh, the, the test of, of true and false teachers and a prophet is in their fruit. What they actually teach and the effect of what they actually teach on their own lives and the lives of others. Now I know that Jesus says at the beginning of chapter 7, do not judge. But you have to either remember or, or, or listen or re-listen to, to Nigel's sermon from last Sunday evening to really work out in what sense Jesus says don't judge and agree that what Jesus means is that, yes, you should be very careful not to be censorious, but on the other hand, you should use discernment. including in this area of Christian teaching. We are to be, not to be censorious, but discerning. So we are to be aware both of the truth and the effects of those who teach us. Not only those who preach, uh, like Richard and his team from the frontier, home group leaders, uh, leaders of our uh, small groups and of our young, uh, children young people's groups, those who attempt to teach uh, each other, just an informal setting. What is the fruit of their teaching? And perhaps just as important in scriptural terms as being inspectors of the fruit of others is to put the mirror on ourselves. Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your teaching, watch your life, because they go together. And if they don't go together, there is a problem. The third illustration, we've had the two gates and we've had the two trees. The third illustration concerns the two houses. One built on the sand and the other built on a rock. To begin with, they both would have looked okay because the problems were underneath in the foundations or upon which the foundations were laid. The house on the sand may have looked even finer for the time being than the house built on the rock. Nothing wrong with it at all above ground. What was happening underneath was that there was a weakness which sooner or later would be found out. Note, too, that both houses, both the one built on the sand and the one built on, on, the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the rock, are tested in the same way. They both suffer from the storms and the floods. It isn't the house built on rock escapes them, but they both have storms, both have, have, uh, 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 have floods. That point we see which is the house that will stand and can withstand the storms and the floods, the one built on a firm foundation. 
I guess it's important for us as professing Christians to so build on the rock that we can anticipate and prepare for and guard ourselves against the storms that may come later. In my life, I've been relatively protected so far from um, really out-of-the-ordinary um, uh, tragedies, uh, sadnesses, and so on. In my life so far, I've known just the ordinary things. Both my parents are now uh, departed this, this present life and so on, but they'd reached a reasonable age and so on. And, uh, 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 and so that is... But, but there are others who have and perhaps some of you, who have known much more severe storms in your lives. And the question is, have you built on a rock in such a way that when those storms have come, or when those storms do come, there is a strength there that comes not from yourself, but from the foundation you have built on that will enable you to withstand the worst that life can offer. We, are, we read and we hear in the daily news of... Ter- you just wonder how some people can just live another day with some of the experiences that life throws up for them. And certainly it must cause them to wonder if this has happened, if my child has died at such an age in such a way... How can there be a loving God in heaven? You're bound to ask that question. What a rock you need to withstand such an experience. Let's build now and not wait until the storm comes and then fiddle around and dig around frantically trying to build a foundation. Trying to dig a foundation. And what is this foundation? It's the foundation of hearing and doing the words of Jesus. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. Jesus refers to these words of mine. So I suppose in the first instance, he's referring to the words he's just preached in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now, since we've come to the end of our preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, for the time being, I'm going to give you a summary of these words of mine. I'm going to give you a summary, or an attempt, a summary of the Sermon on the Mount in 10 words. You ready? The Sermon on the Mount is about transformation of character influence, behavior, devotional life, ambitions, relationships, and priorities. That's the same line. In order. <laughs> Character, beatitudes, priorities, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and so on and so forth. Is this mission possible? To do all of this, to build in this kind of way? To fulfill the demands of this in your face, outrageously, outrageous teaching, is it possible? Please glance with me at verse 29, um, uh, 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 where it says that the crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority. 
And then right at the end of Jesus' preaching, we are peppered with statements about the, the authority of Jesus. In verse 21, he accepts the address, Lord, Lord. In verse 21 also, he calls God, my Father. In verse 23, he claims the right to announce each person's final destiny. In verse 24, he appeals to no other authority than these words of mine. Have we got a hint here of how the Sermon on the Mount uh, hits us as, and informs us and inspires us and encourages us and empowers us as Christians. It is spoken by Jesus, the one who has all authority, the one who is uh, the Son of God. Glance back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And Matthew's Jewish readers, I think, would have recognized in that simple act of going up to a mountain, sitting down and teaching. They thought, that sounds like Moses. And then when we step back from the Sermon on the Mount, we remind ourselves of Moses, Jesus' authority, teacher authority. He, he teaches in the place of, uh, Jesus is the new Moses. There's a kind of a covenant um, renewal going on here. And I'm grateful to Richard for pointing me in this, uh, in this direction, and with this I will close. But on many occasions in the Old Testament, we have this sequence of events. The reading of God's law, the confession of unfaithfulness on the part of God's people, the announcement of forgiveness, remembrance of God's deliverance, the sharing of a meal together, and then going out in peace to love and serve God. That's the kind of shape of the covenant in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and in Nehemiah and elsewhere. But what does that shape sound to you like? Well, the visual aid is right in front of you. Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. The Sermon on the Mount, you see, is not just Jesus saying, you need to be like this. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' declaration of the will of God for our lives and for his kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount sends us to the gospel to God's grace in Jesus Christ, so that we may be ransomed, healed, and restored and forgiven, to quote the words of an old hymn. So the Sermon on the Mount sends us to the gospel of God's grace, and then the gospel of God's grace sends us back to the Sermon on the Mount to teach us how to respond with God-honoring, Christ-shaped, spirit-empowered gratitude. Too demanding, Jesus says, no. Will we fail? Jesus says, yes, of course you'll fail. And you will pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as this very meal will teach us as we share it together, as we remember and celebrate Christ's death until he comes and realize that because of his broken body and shed blood, we have cleansing and forgiveness and healing and can begin to walk faithfully through the gate and along the straight and narrow path that he has set.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. May we, for all our imperfect understanding and incomplete obedience, so cleave to your words, so cleave to you, that we may enter gladly through that narrow gate offered by grace and to walk as your faithful disciples to the end of our lives, regularly seeking your uh, replenishment of grace, your nurturing as we share in the broken body, the emblems, the symbols of the broken body and the shed shed blood that was such a cost uh, to you in order that we might be redeemed and have life. Amen.